This is Smart Women, Smart Power, a podcast that features conversations with some of the world's most powerful women. Look, we're driven by story, right? And I will openly admit, I won't blame myself, but I'll blame my brethren. Uh, We get it wrong all the time because we put story first. We feature thought leaders at all career levels, where we explore, among other things, the many contributions that women make to the fields of international business, national security, foreign policy, and international development. Does having women in positions of power influence the outcomes of decisions in these fields? Why or why not? Join me, Dr. Kathleen McInnes, director of the Smart Women Smart Power Initiative at the Center for Strategic and International Studies for these incredible conversations. This Smart Women Smart Power podcast is supported by Lockheed Martin. We talk a lot in Washington about different kinds of power. Soft power, hard power, smart power. Well, today we're going to spend a little bit of time exploring the roles and realities of our country's creative industries, that is Hollywood, in influencing and shaping American power. So today I'm thrilled to have Chris Levinson on the Smart Women Smart Power podcast. Chris is an extremely talented writer and producer out in Los Angeles who includes among her many, many credits, writing for the hit television show Party of Five, Tyrant, Law and Order, The Original Charmed, and so much, so much more. So I'm I'm so excited for this conversation to, to gain a fresh perspective on smart power from a smart woman on the podcast today as we discuss Chris's role in the entertainment industry, her career, how Washington is perceived in LA and vice versa. So welcome to the podcast, Chris. Oh, I'm so thrilled to be here. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So here on on Smart Women, Smart Power, I'd like to start the conversation by hearing a bit more about how you found yourself in your industry and in the path that you've, you've taken over your career. It's, I, it's never a straight line, is it? I was I was running away from it, <laughs> I think is what how it began. I, um, I grew up in L.A., L.A. native, the daughter of a television writer producer. My dad, Richard Levinson, created shows like Columbo and Murder, She Wrote and was also a phenomenal dad. So I would you know, I grew up as an only child sitting at the dining room table, hearing him talk about the business. And of course, when you're a kid, you don't want to do what your parents do. Because how right, cool is yeah. that? Right. Now, I'm going to go do, yeah. forge my own path. So um, my intention, when I, was, I went to Stanford and I wrote for the newspaper there, I was going to be a food critic. That was my goal in life. All I care about is food. All I want to do is eat. Those are good goals, to be fair. Right? I mean, what could possibly be more important? And so I, I reached out and I, I was very lucky and got an unpaid internship with Gail Green, who was at New York Magazine at the time. When I graduated, I was going to move to New York but funny enough, for my final few credits at Stanford, I just had a couple more to go. They, they let me write, write a feature. Little did they know. So I wrote a feature and sold it while I was still at school through various and get right. So I ended up staying in LA a little bit longer than I planned to still moving to New York. I had an apartment picked out. Everything was great. One day, my friend Mike 
was a production assistant on a show called The X-Files. This is where I date myself, which I'm fine with. That is a, that is a good show to date oneself right? by. Absolutely. Kind of one of the best. Iconic, amazing. Yeah. I was going to have lunch with Mike. The writers were housed on the Fox lot, which is in kind of West Los Angeles. I got the most prized possession on the planet, which was an assigned parking spot. You don't get that. You especially don't get that like a month out of college. So I pulled up, Mike pulled some strings and I was going to pick him up for lunch and I'm going towards the parking spot. I'm feeling really good about myself. And there's two, there are two men standing in my parking spot, having a very heated conversation. And so I politely kind of just, hi, and could you just kind of, you can't see me gesticulating on a podcast, but very polite hand gestures. Could you please move out of the way? And one of the men turned to me and put his hands on his hips and kind of went, ha ha, like I'm not going to move. So I might've hit him with my car lightly. It was light. It's, it's, it's a love tap. It was just, I mean, business and, and you're keeping me from lunch. And it turns out the gentleman standing in the parking spot was my friend, Mike's boss, who at the time was running the X-Files. His name was and still is Howard Gordon. And he's gone on to create shows like 24 and Homeland and Tyrant, where I worked with him. But he thought I was funny. He asked me what I did. And I said, I'm going to be a food critic. And he said, do you have any of your writing? And I said, oh, I have this feature I wrote for college in the trunk of my, no joke, in the trunk of my car. So he asked if he could read it. Howard read it and offered me a job on the X-Files which really pissed Sweet Mike off. And I, I was like, no, because he really, and he later did get an episode. But, and I said, that's incredibly flattering and thank you so much, but I don't want to write for television. And Howard laughed and said, neither do I, which he would still say. And he said, everyone here is miserable anyway. So I, again, p- pack in my bags, moving to New York. And he said, I actually sent your stuff to my friends, Chris and Amy, who created Party of Five, because I think they'd really respond to this subject matter but they hate everything, including their own writing. So don't worry about it. You're going to New York. And then I get a call and they'd like me to come in and meet. And I met with Chris and Amy, who are now still good friends and who I've now worked with on two shows after this. And when they offered me a job on Party of Five, I said to my mom, I think I need to try this. Well, the universe is speaking to you. Like, you know, like those are some pretty hard, like, signals. And the folks at at the magazine were all like, it was very sweet when I went to visit. They were like, we all want to write for television. Go do it. We're not going anywhere. Which, of course, food criticism has completely evaporated. It has gone somewhere. They don't, you know, now everybody with with a phone and, you know, an opinion can be a food critic. But yeah, so that is what started me reluctantly kicking and screaming on my path. And I never stopped. So it's been 28, 29 years now. So as you reflect on your trajectory in your career, there's so many different routes that you can go. How have you thought about what appeals to you uh, building your career? What's made sense to you and, and piqued your interest? I'm going to lie down on the therapy couch now because now, now you're asking a writer how to, I mean, you've had these extraordinary women on this podcast and I'm like, okay, let's talk about writing. It's so important. And it is. And it's the joy of my life. As much as it drives me nuts, it's, the, it's, um, it's very lucky to get to do what I do. So I would say it changes all the time. And it's a really interesting time to reflect on that question because the industry is changing so quickly. And as a friend of mine said, anyone who claims to understand it right now is lying to you. So I go back to when, you know, I grew up with my father's way of doing things and he had extraordinary friends who many of them had been mentees under him who went on to have 
huge careers, people like Steven Bochco or this director who worked on Columbo named Steven Spielberg, you know, like these people who went on. This is a random guys, you know. And my dad was a very proud papa. But um, so I listened to him. And then as I kind of got my feet wet, there was a, a way to do things that no longer exists. So as I was kind of coming of age, what you did is you started as a staff writer and you slowly with each show tried to move up the ladder. And there are different rungs. And I will skip some, I'm sure, but staff writer, story editor, executive story editor, co-producer, producer, and you had to earn your stripes as you moved up all the way to executive producer, which now, if you're in charge, has the loving thing. We call ourselves showrunners. Actually, I don't think we do. I think it was a name someone else gave us. It means you do everything. And you go gray and you lose a lot of weight and your family misses you. But... So back then, really, the goal was to move up the ladder. And I will add to that, there weren't a lot of women doing it. So I was told once, I do remember this, when an agent called me for a job, and it was broadcast then. It was ABC, NBC. Things were live way back when, before cell phones. And I feel like a dinosaur, but it's okay. But there was a staffing season. There was a time of year where everybody got their jobs or didn't. And I was told by an agent, I got a phone call, and he said, they're looking for their woman. That's what I said. Uh, so what'd you say? And he said, they're looking for their one woman because you used to be able to say that. And I said, okay, do you hear the words that you're using? And he said, yeah, they're looking for their one woman. And I'm like, all right, you know what? I'm not going to change minds today, but I just need you to be really aware of what you're now. It has completely in the most beautiful, exciting, tremendous way. It has shifted. Not enough. I'm going to go on record to say, a lot has not changed. We love to toot our horn and say we've learned our lessons, but um, so much. I was hearing some, t- some statistics today on NPR, actually, about like up in the 90 percentile of men are cinematographers, 70 percentile are editor. Like we need, we need more. But so that was basically what I was focused on was getting that one seat in the room, mm-hmm. moving my title up. Because the goal was always to be doing my own stuff, which I'm lucky enough to do now, develop my own ideas, shoot my own pilots. So I think that was the long, longest winding road to get to the answer to your question. But that was the way it was before. It's not anymore. Now you can have your first idea picked up to series. And that's wonderful and dangerous because a lot of people aren't getting trained. It's weird. Like you kind of get looked down on for having gone through all those levels. But now things have pivoted and folks like at Netflix and Amazon are like, oh, we actually need someone who knows how to do the job. Right. And, and, you know, it's it's so interesting. It seems to me there's actually a parallel with government and and government service in that the systems that we have for hiring, retaining people, you start in usually early as a, as a presidential management fellow or something along those lines, and you work your way up the rungs, maybe get to GS-15. And But that's the traditional system. So many people want to move in and out. Actually, the, the real way to advance one's career tends to be like, I remember being told, if you want to move up, you have to move out. So, you know, so weaving in and out of, of government is prioritized, if unspoken, I guess we we, we keep that the soft part to ourselves, but it's the attention with how the system is designed to to keep people. And so as a result, mid-career folks, they sort of had their time in government and they're like, well, okay, it's time to do something else. But Um, can you bounce back in? So is experience, is outside experience 
then rewarded? Or is it simply you're <laughs> for in our business put out to pasture? Like how it's, I would say it's more like if you leave government, you need to have the expectation that you're not going to come back. And there's some really great work being done to try to figure out how to change that. It's been recognized as a problem, but I just, I'm struck at how there's these in a very big picture sense, the way that we manage our people and our talent in these different industries is, is shifting so profoundly with, with all of these different market changes. It's so interesting to me too, though, because it's one of those things where I can understand both of us work in worlds where it is a bit of a young person's game as far as energy <laughs> and right. chutzpah. And, you know, when I'm in production, it's 19 hour days. It's no joke. And you don't get weekends off and you get, and that, that is something that the appeal of that does wear off. However, there's a shift in entertainment. And I see it again, as from a very outside perspective of your world, because I look at politicians and they're not spring chickens. And for the, I mean, from the top, as the fish stinks from the head down. So, yeah. And then for us, again, if you really look, if you don't read the, the fluff pieces and you really look at who's running television shows and who's running networks, which are the people who make the decisions, they're predominantly older white men. So I would say from a creative standpoint, not the executives, but the writers, what I love is that you can write into your 60s, 70s. And from that comes tremendous experience yeah. in the words. And so I'm curious, that's so interesting to hear that you have kind of a middle bar where people are being excused. And I'm like, but that's when we learn. That's when we actually know what we're doing. That's, that's, that's exactly right. Um, they've called it in, in our world, a mid-career retention crisis. Because again, like you, as soon as you know what you're doing and you have a good sense of, of how those, the system works, you, people tend to leave for, for a variety of reasons. And, and and to be fair to the government, there's a recognition of the problem. It just takes a long time for any of these things to, to be addressed. Um, but but so we were comparing notes on, on DC and, and LA Hollywood. This is a question that it's, it's really broad, but I think it's really critically important. How, in your view, does LA see Washington? Like, it's, it just seemed to me that we're, DC is a pretty, we, we call ourselves, you know, the Beltway bubble, you know? <laughs> And we can be pretty insular. So I'm just very curious. How does, how are we viewed? It's a really good question. And it's so fun because it's, I, I, I don't want to just respond sarcastically, although it's so tempting, simply because look, we're driven by story, right? And I will openly admit, I won't blame myself, but I'll blame my brethren. Uh, we get it wrong all the time because we put story first. So I like I was very lucky and honored and I was flown out with a handful of other writers to I was telling you earlier to meet with the CIA um, pre-COVID and they were so gracious and really open. Well, in my opinion, they opened their doors to us. I'm sure there were many closed doors that I didn't see, <laughs> but to spend time with them and the, the whole reason for the trip was, as they said, we're not asking you to write about us. We know ne you're not necessarily currently working on a project that involves us. We just want you to get it right when you do. So now you have contact with us. You can reach out directly. For example, and it's so funny because the one thing they cited was, you know, Jack Ryan would not have a gun. 
And my first thought was, oh, I did a huge rewrite on Jack Ryan season two, but none of the scenes with the gun. I felt so relieved. <laughs> also, also, I, I have to say a real quick interjection as, yeah. as, a, as a Maryland girl. Um, there's this like scene in like the first episode where they're having crabs, but they're not blue crabs. They're like Dungeness crabs. And I was like, no, has <laughs> like, to be just like blue crabs. <laughs> That totally matters. Like getting it right. I'm such a fervent believer in getting it right. And you really, on a show like that, you rely on your team and you rely on so many, but you would be blown away by the amount of meetings we have to discuss the kind of crabs that they should be eating. So that's disappointing. But it, it is trying to figure out, and, and I learned this a lot on Law & Order, and I will credit Leslie Crocker Schneider, who ran for DA as an amazing woman and was one of our advisors on the show. She went, first of all, she called me, this was years ago now. And the first thing she said is, Chris Levinson's a woman. And I said, yes, she is. And she's like, <laughs> when you come to New York next time, we're having drinks, which we did because she'd never worked with a woman on Law and Order before. I was the one woman at the time. They now, eh, well, we could still improve the numbers, but, and I loved writing the show very, very much, but it was great to get to talk to her because she would get one of my scripts and she would say, all right, Chris. This wouldn't happen. And she's like, but I do understand the story you're trying to tell. Let's figure out how we can legally make it plausible. I did not go to law school, but I know what makes a good story. And I know what makes a good mystery. That's what I excel in and what I love. So when you look at DC and you look at the shows that, you know, the Homelands and the, you know, and the Jack Ryans that are violently successful and for good reason, they're fun and they're, in Homeland's case, like fantastical character studies. And I know like different writers do different amounts of research, but to us, DC is, and I'm, I will only speak for myself because I hate when people speak for the, but you know, DC is what I've seen in the movies, right? So I've already learned from a remove and I'm, I, I like to think I'm a pretty diligent follower of the news and I stay, you know, connected, but my three days there, on that trip that I referenced were so eye-opening as far as even down to simple behavior in a room is so right. different from, and I think I told you this as well, like we were meeting a handful of politicians. We were very lucky. We were sitting in a room together and the person who put the group together said to the writers, no, great, let's go around the room and, and share our credits. And write, every writer went ashen because we are not, that's not how we're built. We don't toot our own horn. We don't walk into a room going, well, I was nominated for an Emmy. Like, that's not what we do. And so you kind of downplay it and you fumble. And Damon Lindelof, who's a brilliant show creator, was sitting next to me and just was very quietly being like, I created a, a show called Lost and I'm doing Watchmen now. You may have, I don't know if you've seen it. I was like, it was everybody. We were so uncomfortable. And afterwards, the people who had planned the trip were like, that seemed um, hard for you guys. We were like, never make us do that again. And he said, it's funny because in DC, that's part of the programming. You come in and the first thing you lay out are your credentials. We downplay it. You will say to some of the most successful writers in Hollywood, so what are you working on? And they'll say, you know, the usual. You later find out they're writing a movie for Ridley Scott and they're not, you know, they're nominated for, you know, like it's, it's just not, and it's not true for everyone, but we are built differently. So Back to your actual question. I think DC is partially for us this myth, kind of like how we perceive it. And I think actually the nuts and bolts that I'm slowly getting to see a little bit more of through you, which is such a pleasure, is equally fascinating. I just don't think it's been 100% portrayed. I think it would take a lot more living it to be able to, it's not a Google 
type thing. Right. <laughs> well, and, and, and also like, you know, because I mentioned the Beltway bubble, but also in the world of national security specifically, I mean, it's very insular for a reason. There's actually a lot of people that would quibble with the statement and rightly so, but I'll, I'll say it anyway. It's hard to be trained in academia to do government work, to know how to be a government civil servant, for example, that, that can get the job done. Because it's it, we're in a, a place that the classified stuff is discussed all the time. You've got to be in those those rooms in the, with those kinds of procedures and controls. And as a result, or maybe related to it, we prioritize learned experience. And so there's not a really good training manual on how to do this, this kind of work. But to that end, like, isn't it? And I was just thinking about like, I went when I was a kid, I went to camp on a working farm and we had to milk cows. Milking a cow is not easy. And I'm just thinking about like, if you actively, even if you read a manual, it is light years away from having a living creature in front of you where you have to actively remove milk from them. You know, it's like, and I'm just thinking like, it's a similar thing. And I think the only way to bridge that gap, and again, I'll only speak for myself. When I'm, I was, I was just I'm writing a pilot for Paramount and it was a thriller that had a retired CIA operative at the core of it. Now, here's what I did. I came up with a story that worked. I came up with more importantly, characters that I would hope people would want to watch every week. Then you run it by people who actually do it for a living and say, is this feasible? Is this? And I think that having an open line of communication for that, not, not that we want to take away time from the government actually functioning to make television shows. But I think it's one thing that someone at the CIA said that I really appreciated was they're not getting enough women applying for jobs in their tech sector section anyway, but they're not getting enough women. And they said, because basically all girls are seeing on TV are guys wearing hoodies. And you can look at Silicon Valley, you can look at Mr. Robot, you can look at all shows I've enjoyed. But at the core, predominantly, it's it's men on the keyboards. And they said, if anything, could you add more women characters doing that job? And I'm not going to downplay the importance of television comes into your phone, into your home, and, and it does impact the next generation. So that it's like a no brainer. It's our, it's our worldviews in so many, so many ways going a little bit more into story, you know, because with this podcast we're we're collecting women's stories of, you know, their different roles and decisions that they've taken. We're trying to take a, a storytelling focus to, to the work we're doing here as, as a story writer yourself. Like what does storytelling mean to you? I'd love your thoughts. If you've seen story affect an outcome or shape somebody's perception of things. God. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting. And this has changed so much over the course of my career as well, because we can now read responses to our work online in real time. Oh, you know what I mean? So that's changed in the last few, as soon as the internet pop and you have to be very aware of your choices of how you engage with that. If you're going to believe the good, you got to believe the bad. And so it's a thing of seeing how that, and you know, I, I tend to, um, I've killed a lot of people. That's what I do in my creative storytelling. I've murdered a lot. I've buried people alive. I've cut out tongues. I am, I hundreds. So I hope that I've not had an impact in that way because I <laughs> tend to write crime. But I do know that there have been both experiences and I will go back to my dad in a heartbeat because I'm feeling it's actually just this last weekend was the anniversary of him passing away. And I lost him when I was 14. So I'm like, I'm very much with dad on my brain. But I did, I wrote one story. There was a show called Touch 
that I worked on that was on Fox that was a flawed conceit, but really, man, it was fun to write for the first chunk. And it was Kiefer Sutherland was the star and he had a son who was um, nonverbal and they connected through uh, patterns and numbers. And anyway, we got to tell stories that were quote unquote around the world. We shot them all in Culver City, but I had one in space. So I had people with zero gravity and I had one in Saudi before women could drive. And I was able to write a story about two young girls who borrowed a car and were secretly driving and no one would ever know except that they came upon someone who needed their help. And they had to decide whether or not to help that person and risk getting caught, which they did. The person they helped actually turned them in. So that was the first time that I I came home. I remember walking up the, the walkway and my husband was like, you got to see what people are saying online. And I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. No, I don't. We don't play that. I'm like, no, yeah, no, no don't, don't, don't read the trolls. <laughs> yeah. And my husband actually lived in Saudi as a, as a younger person. So he was very connected. And that's what we it kind of inspired the story or whatever to read from women who were living that life and to hear that I had touched on a fantasy and, or on some true feelings when clearly that is not the life that I live. But it's one that as a, as a storyteller, I have to invite, I was these two teenage girls, I was their voice. Yeah. But that to me didn't necessarily inspire change for these women. Ultimately, it's changed, but that was very powerful. My dad wrote one of the first gay couples on television, one of the first interracial couples on television. And I accepted an award for him from the Producers Guild. He wrote a movie called That Certain Summer, which was a very, very, very young Hal Holden. And why am I blanking on his name? He played the president in West Wing. Martin Sheen, so young and so pretty. And the conceit was uh, Hal had, had, had been married and had a child and then realized he was gay and came out and got divorced. This was 1972. And he got summers with his son. And so his son was coming to visit and to meet his lover for the first time. And after I accepted the award, which was so amazing to get to do. I wish my dad had been there to do it himself, but it was lovely to get to do it. Someone came up to me and said, um, after I watched that movie, I had the courage to come out to my parents. And you're just like, what we do matters. And there is a huge responsibility for doing what we do. And you put it out there, you know, I'm sitting as we're talking, I'm sitting in my office from where I have written hours and hours and hours and hours that have gone out into the world, you know, and we are responsible for that. And it does, even if we don't know about it, it impacts, certainly what I watch impacts how I think. There are a couple of examples. There you go. I don't know. <laughs> it's, what, what struck me about what you were sharing is the universality, I suppose, of, of the human experience in some ways. That story, when done right, allows one to connect with something deep and resonant and common that, that connects us. Gosh, when done well, I would hope so. I mean, that's the magic, isn't it? Like you can nitpick and pull and we all, we all pride ourselves on being critics. Now it's so easy. I tell this when I'm running writer's rooms, it's really easy to poke holes. You got to have a suggestion for a fix. You can't just tear it down. So doing things as, as you're saying, like at the core, I'm big on plot. I do love a good twist. I love a surprise. I love all those things. Like I'm your girl, but it's exactly to that, to that point. It's, it's, you've got to connect to it on some, it can be entertaining. It can be fun. But at the end of the day, if you see a bit of humanity that you relate to, it elevates it from simple entertainment. 
and nothing about entertainment is simple, but it's, um, and especially now we need it and we need fun and we need, but I could, you know, I could go into a litany of recent shows that really are great fun and beautifully crafted. Although I will say, I would argue there aren't a lot of great shows on right now. There is a lot of material, a handful of great shows, but, uh, the ones that work, they move you. Thank you so much, Chris, for walking us through your experiences and your reflections on being a woman in in that industry and your experience of what sounds to me almost like finding your voice, like your voice and your yourself as, as an established person within this very complex industry. And, you know, that speaking of stories that resonate across different worlds, I've noticed that the story of women finding their voices and standing up for themselves is one that is, it's so hard. It's just so hard, but so important. And there's almost always that crucible moment of of when you find it. Um, so thank you for sharing your experiences and your pro tips about you know, working in LA and possibly getting locked in a, you know, but bubble wrap, wear bubble wrap. No, I, and by the way, I really appreciate you putting it that way. That's a beautiful find finding your voice. I mean, it's right. What every writer longs to do. And I like to think the stuff I write now, I hadn't, it's so stuff we take for granted, right? The stuff I write now is all strong women, flawed and conflicted and messy, but the stuff like the last pilot that I shot was, you know, it's like a woman, 65 year old woman dealing with her demon, you know? So thank you for pointing that out. Sometimes I think all of us are so deeply entrenched in what we do. We sometimes lose sight of why we do it and how we do it. But no, I, I, I hope that you, as this podcast continues too, I am constantly being energized by women who are newer to this industry and hearing their stories and how it's different not different enough, but it is. We've, I like to think, yeah, we, we bled in more ways than one to hopefully improve the system, you yeah. know? A lot more work to go, a lot, lot more work to do, long way to go, but, you know, but it is on the Washington side, there have been noticeable improvements, not just in terms of gender ratios, but the kinds of questions that are, the discussions that we're having seem to be improved because we have these different voices at the table, which is really yeah. neat. Yeah. By the way, it takes all voices. That's the thing. Right. Yep. Yeah. Absolutely. Yep. Takes all voices. Well, thanks, Chris. Um, thank you so much for your time. And what a terrific conversation. Thank you. Thank you so much. Can we do this every day? You're right. Really? <laughs> <laughs> Subscribe to the Smart Women Smart Power podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to great content. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Smart Women, or you can follow me on Twitter at KJ McInnes one Thanks for listening, and join us next time. This Smart Women, Smart Power podcast is supported by Lockheed Martin.